Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, well, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Update on Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And because the program is about lymphoma today, I also want to put a special call out to Lymphoma a Research Foundation with whom we work a great deal with and who actually um, is a fountain of information for any of you who have questions about um, that, you've, that you're asking your doctor but just want another place to go to. So I'll mention them again at the end of the program as well. Um, now, today's program um, is really... Um, uh, wonderful. We have so many of you on the call today. We have over 494 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. We have international participants from Canada, India, and United Kingdom. So really, it's a credit to all of you to be on the call today, and it's a bit of a global call, actually, with all of you on the call. Today's program is supported by AbbVie, Celgene Corporation, and Novartis Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I feel very I'm honored to have such great speakers today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. John Leonard. Dr. Leonard is the Richard T. Silver Distinguished Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology. He's also Associate Dean for Clinical Research, Wild Cornell Medical College. He's also Vice Chairman for Clinical Research, Wild Department of Medicine, and Associate Director of Clinical Trials, Sandra and Edward Meyer Cancer Center at Wild Cornell Medicine attending physician, Chief Lymphoma Service, New York Presbyterian, and he is director of the Joint Clinical Trials Office, Wild Cornell Medicine, and New York Presbyterian. And Dr. Lennon will be addressing an overview of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, staging and grading, current treatment options, emerging treatment approaches, and communicating with your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Leonard. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn, and I want to thank you and the team at uh, at Cancer Care and the Lymphoma Research Foundation. It's also be uh, great to be here with my colleague, Dr. Smith. Uh, we've worked together on many projects over the years, so it's great to uh, be part of this program, and uh, obviously we want this to be very helpful to uh, the audience. So um, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is the most common of the non-Hodgkin lymphomas. We divide lymphomas into Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. Within non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, there are T and B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas, with B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma being the most common category. And we look at the B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas as falling into three major groups, aggressive lymphomas, indolent or low-grade or slow-growing lymphomas, and then kind of the other lymphomas, which is a number of different types. So diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is the most common lymphoma overall. It accounts for about 30% of people with lymphoma, and it is therefore the most common of the aggressive lymphomas. And the term aggressive is kind of a double-edged sword. There are good things about aggressive lymphomas and not so good things about aggressive lymphomas, depending on your perspective and your situation. Um, just like all things, uh, each of these lymphomas has features that may be either more or less challenging to deal with. So 
Aggressive lymphomas, unlike some of the other types, virtually always need treatment at the time they're diagnosed, so patients need to be treated. Chemotherapy is the basis of treatment, is the backbone of treatment, although there are other options coming along, and we'll talk about some of those in, in Dr. Smith's segment in particular. Uh, and um, so everyone needs treatment, and everyone gets chemotherapy, uh, usually plus one or more other um, modalities as part of the chemotherapy treatment. So, so the, a good part about diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is that it is uh, a curable lymphoma, meaning that the majority of patients, though unfortunately not all, but the majority of patients go through treatment, go into remission, meaning their lymphoma uh, is not evident uh, after treatment. It is in remission. The scans and the assessments look um, show essentially no evidence of lymphoma. And for the majority of patients, the disease can be cured, meaning it goes away and doesn't come back. Now, there are cases where that doesn't happen and the disease relapses, and, and that's uh, going to be the main focus of, of Dr. Smith's talk. Um, so it doesn't always uh, work out as well as we'd like in everyone, but for many people, uh, it is the matter of going through a course of treatment, uh, putting up with the treatment, and for many people, um, the disease goes into remission and doesn't come back and is effectively cured. So our goals are obviously to Im improve and increase the chances of curing the disease so that it goes into remission and doesn't come back, and obviously to make that path, to make that treatment uh, as manageable as possible because the side effects uh, and challenges of treatment obviously are um, are not trivial for anyone, um, manageable for many, but and challenging for for others. So we'll talk more about the the current kind of standard treatment for diffuse large B cell lymphoma in a, in a moment. So diffuse large B cell lymphoma again being the most common of the lymphomas, always needing treatment when it's diagnosed. We typically stage patients with lymphomas, and the term stage. Is, is essentially an assessment to see where did the lymphoma spread. And in general, stage, or the number of places a lymphoma has spread, is not a crucial factor uh, in lymphoma for most patients. Most lymphomas are in multiple places, so they tend to be stage three or four, meaning that they're in multiple areas of the body, both, ab both above and below the waist or above and below the diaphragm, that's stage three and outside the lymph nodes in those areas is stage four, versus stage one or two is when the lymphoma is localized in one or uh, one area, one lymph node area, or one region not spreading to other areas. So unlike uh, diseases like breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, where the stage is the dominant feature, meaning where did it spread, is the dominant feature in defining the prognosis and treatment, in lymphomas, most patients, including diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, most patients have it in multiple places, and most patients are then considered to have advanced stage disease. That's not as big of an issue in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma as it is in other cancers. Uh, and in the process of staging the lymphoma, we do a number of tests to see where it is. This includes physical examination, where the, the doctor and the the uh, provider examines the patient, feels for, for lymph nodes, feels for other organs that might be affected, takes a history and asks about symptoms that might direct further evaluation, uh, conducts laboratory studies that give a sense of how the lymphoma is affecting the body, and um, performs 
tests, uh, most commonly a test called a PET scan or a PET CT scan, which is a combination of a PET scan and a CT scanner. A CT scanner effectively slices a patient like a salami visually, looks at each slice of the patient and says, well, okay, are there things that are out of place? Uh, are there things, uh, are lymph nodes enlarged? Are there lumps or tumors in, in places where they shouldn't be involving organs and other areas? And then a PET scan involves an injection of radioactive sugar that lights up where the lymphoma is. It also lights up in infection and inflammation. So a PET scan is not a perfect or specific test for lymphoma because other things can demonstrate abnormalities on, on a PET scan. But the typical testing includes, a, 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 again, uh, these, these physical exam, laboratory studies, uh, and uh, a PET scan or a PET CT scan is typically done. And then sometimes patients undergo MRI scans, depending on the nature of the lymphoma and the symptoms that the patient is having to better clarify certain issues. So, for instance, if brain lymphoma was suspected, an MRI scan would be helpful or spinal lymphoma was uh, suspected an MRI would be helpful, although these are not tests that are routinely done. In some cases, there's a reason to examine those areas a little bit greater. In some cases, in, uh, commonly patients undergo a bone marrow biopsy. That's an assessment of the, uh, the, the bone marrow, the cavity inside the bone. That's relevant in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma because that could lead to a change in stage and specifically could lead to a change of treatment. Occasionally, also in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, patients have what's called a lumbar puncture, which is essentially an assessment of the spinal fluid, the fluid that goes around the brain and the spinal cord, and involves a small uh, uh, needle uh, sampling that fluid down in the lower back, kind of like uh, in an epidural, uh, close, similarly to what's done in an epidural test when, when people have surgery or women deliver babies. Um, and so there are a number of other tests that are done in certain situations, um, but most patients, it's really a matter of the physical examination, the laboratory studies, the history, and then uh, some of the basic tests, primarily a PET scan and sometimes a bone marrow evaluation. So the standard treatment for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, the basis of this treatment, is a regimen of chemotherapy called CHOP, C-H-O-P, CHOP stands for four drugs, and some of the names don't fit the letters anymore uh, because the names have changed, but the four drugs in CHOP include cyclophosphamide or cytoxan, doxorubicin or adriamycin, the old name became, began with an H, oncovin or vincristine, and the P stands for prednisone. And then typically patients are also treated with a drug called rituximab or rituxan, which is an antibody that is added to the chemotherapy and contributes to the efficacy and makes it work better, makes, uh, more helps more patients to be cured. So RCHOP is the standard treatment. This is typically administered, and I'm sure many in the audience are familiar with this because most patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma are treated with RCHOP. This is a treatment that is given typically as an outpatient. One day, uh, the infusions are given. Uh, one day every three weeks, typically for six treatments or six cycles. So the treatment is done, again, once every three weeks for six treatments. So it works out to be about four months on average, typically as an outpatient. And the typical side effects of RCHOP are that uh, RCHOP 
causes low blood count, so patients need to be monitored for infection. RCHOP causes hair loss. Uh, the adriamycin, which is the most important drug in, in CHOP or RCHOP, uh, causes hair loss. Sometimes that can cause uh, heart issues. Uh, it, this regimen can cause fatigue, can cause uh, sometimes neuropathy or numbness and tingling of the fingers and toes. Uh, and uh, some nausea, although this is typically managed pretty well with the supplementary medicines that manage nausea. So these are the typical profile of symptoms with RCHOP, and you can look at RCHOP and say, well, that doesn't sound that great, but I would say that some people have a hard time with it, while others feel, you know, other than the obvious uh, uh, issues around hair loss and other things, feel close to their normal self or 80% of their normal self, uh, and manage to work and do most of their normal things. So there's a range of how people do with RCHOP, and when people are going through RCHOP, their treatment team is monitoring them closely to make sure that they are not having any major side effects and that those that they're having are, are dealt with with supportive medications and other measures that can minimize uh, the risks of problems and make the patient uh, as comfortable as possible while they're getting the treatment. So a message there is really that Everyone is not the same as far as how well they tolerate RCHOP. Some patients, uh, I don't want to minimize it as far as being a challenge, and for some people it's uh, quite challenging, but others uh, it's quite manageable, and, and for many it's somewhere in between. So uh, it's, a, it's a pretty variable sort of thing, and I think the main thing, which is another theme of our discussion, is as patients are going through treatment and making treatment decisions, that uh, communicating with a healthcare team about what the treatment, what the prognosis is, what the treatment plan is, what are the expectations of the treatment, is it likely to work, what is the risk profile of the patient, is the patient likely to have side effects and which side effects, and obviously communicating when you have those side effects so that you do everything possible to reduce and minimize the risk or deal with those side effects so that adjustments in the treatment or the supportive care are made uh, as necessary. So um, I just want to, I'll finish up my section in just a minute, but I just want to make a couple of other quick points. One is that there are a variety of variations of RCHOP that are sometimes used. There is a regimen or a version of RCHOP called REPOCH, E-P-O-C-H, and that is a drug that adds an additional, uh, a regimen that adds an additional drug called etoposide, and it's given over four days each cycle rather than one day. So it's a little more complicated to give, often in the hospital or as an outpatient through an ambulatory pump. And so that is a more complex regimen that is not used for the typical patient with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, but is sometimes used in a couple of categories with of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, one called primary mediastinal lymphoma, where the lymphoma presents itself typically with a mass uh, in the chest, uh, or a subtype of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma called double-hit lymphoma, which is associated with a couple of genetic changes in the lymphoma cells, typically involving something called BCL2 and MYC, and so we often run these tests as part of the pathology because those are a group of patients that don't do as well with RCHOP, and so we often, they appear to do better with the REPOC group, so in those categories of patients, we often 
use the more complicated our EPOC regimen. And again, these are nuances of lymphoma that physicians and lymphoma experts know, and when they're looking at the pathology, may make subtle changes in the treatment to try to tailor it to the, the patient's individual situation. There are occasional types of lymphoma, of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, where patients have a risk of involvement of the central nervous system of the brain. And so in certain categories of patients, we do additional lumbar punctures, these uh, kind of epidural type of uh, uh, in, uh, 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 injections or uh, assessments, and we give a drug called methotrexate or ARIS-C into the, the fluid around the spinal cord and brain. So that's an uncommon scenario, but in certain scenarios, we do tweak the treatment to uh, adapt it to this sort of risk profile, particularly with respect to the risk of brain involvement of the lymphoma, which is rele relevant to a minority of people, but in certain people is significant enough that we say, hey, let's take the RCHOP regimen and add in these extra drugs in a little bit different way, either in addition to the systemic chemotherapy or uh, as these special injections uh, through the lumbar punctures to try to assess and deal with that sort of risk. So most people get treated with RCHOP, but there are some special situations where something different or something in addition to the RCHOP uh, is typically an apply, applied and administered. Once patients go into remission with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, we typically do not uh, give additional therapy after they're in remission. Uh, it is an uncommon scenario if the disease looks good and the PET scans at the end of treatment look good, then we typically then monitor the patient. We typically do not give additional treatment after that in the if the patient is in remission. And in fact, most of the monitoring of patients once they are in remission um, is done clinically, meaning visits with the doctor, physical examination, laboratory work, and discussion. And I'm sure in the question session, we'll talk a little bit about monitoring with PET scans and CAT scans when someone's in remission, but that is really a minor part of the follow-up once patients are in remission and are typically not done on a regular basis unless something new is going on, some problem is going on. And then finally, uh, I want to turn this over to Dr. Smith, but there are a number of new drugs in clinical trials that are being added to the RCHOP regimen to try to make it work better. And I think Dr. Smith may touch on some of these. We may come back to them because some of them might be useful for patients with relapsed lymphoma and are being tested in clinical trials to say, does RCHOP plus some new drug do better, meaning help patients do better, than RCHOP by itself. And there are a number of phase three trials comparing these regimens that are ongoing, but as of today, those are not standard of care. And again, for most patients, RCHOP is the typical treatment. So with that for now, I'll, I'll stop, and I'm sure we'll come back to some of these other issues uh, in Dr. Smith's comments as well as in the questions. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Leonard. That was really an outstanding and very comprehensive um, presentation. So thank you. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Somali Smith. Dr. Smith is an Elwood Lee Jensen Professor of Medicine, Director of Lymphoma Program, University of Chicago Medicine. And Dr. Smith is going to be addressing treatment options for resistant disease, the role of clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options, tips to manage side effects, and quality of life concerns. It's now my pleasure to turn this panel over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Smith. 
Thank you so much, Carolyn, and also thank you to Dr. Leonard for really an outstanding overview and for setting up the stage so nicely for this next portion. So as Dr. Carolyn Messner just mentioned, I'm going to cover a couple of different topics, and I'll start by talking about treatment options for relapse disease. So as we just heard uh, from Dr. Leonard, initial treatment for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is really solid and, and cures a good portion of patients. However, we know that it doesn't work for all people and for all disease, and that uh, in many uh, or in some patients, the disease can come back after a prior remission, something we call relapse disease, or it may not respond at all, or may respond imperfectly to our CHOP or frontline treatment, in which case we give the term refractory. The standard of care, if diffuse large B-cell lymphoma does not go into remission or if it comes back after initial treatment, uh, is to go forward with second-line therapy with the hopes of proceeding to an autologous stem cell transplant. So let, to explain this a little bit further, uh, one theory and one you know, approach is that if our CHOP chemotherapy does not work, we give second-line chemotherapy and we give it a special name. We call it salvage chemotherapy. Uh, the salvage chemotherapy usually has different types of chemotherapy drugs than the initial treatment, and there are different nicknames that we have. So, for example, you might hear about R-ICE or R-DHAP uh, or R-GDP or R-GEMOX. And what all of these different recipes, if you will, are, are just other types of chemotherapy typically combined with the letter R, which stands for rituximab or rituxan. And we give the salvage chemotherapy for at least two and sometimes up to three uh, cycles, usually about uh, three weeks apart. And if uh, the disease responds and goes into remission, then we consolidate that response with an autologous stem cell transplant. And the data supporting autologous stem cell transplant is not uh, entirely new. It's been around for several decades. Uh, and what uh, autologous transplant means in this setting is that we know that with many diffuse large B-cell lymphomas, uh, there is something called a dose-response curve, which means that the more chemotherapy you give, you can hopefully overcome any resistant cells. But, of course, when you give very high doses of chemotherapy, there are other parts of the body that may not tolerate this, and one area in particular is the bone marrow. So the bone marrow is the uh, cavity inside your bones, as Dr. Leonard explained, where it's essentially a factory making all of the blood elements, such as red cells, white cells, and platelets. When we do an autologous stem cell transplant and we give the high doses of chemotherapy, a normal bone marrow uh, can't really recover from the very high doses of chemotherapy. So in this instance, we take a person's own stem cells ahead of time, with stem cells being these parent cells, if you will, that can give rise to all the elements of the bone marrow, and we store them separately. We then have uh, patients uh, receive the very high doses of chemotherapy and rescue them with their own stem cells. And this combination of salvage chemotherapy, a response, high-dose chemotherapy, and autologous stem cell rescue is a very standard and very appropriate uh, approach for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma if it comes back or does not respond to the initial treatment. And so this has become the standard of care. 
However, uh, we know that, again, there are a portion of patients where even this high-dose chemotherapy may not put the disease into remission or it may not work at uh, curing the disease. And while in the past we haven't had um, any standard options, we now have, as of November of 2017, a new approach that is approved in the United States um, for, for patients who have been through at least two lines of chemotherapy for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And this new option has a nickname called CAR-T, C-A-R-T. And this stands for chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. And this is a very promising and exciting new technology that is different from a stem cell transplant. So I'd like to just sort of explain what is different about it and how it works. So what a CAR-T approach does is instead of taking stem cells from the patient, we take T-cells, remembering that T-cells are a normal part of the immune system And their job is typically to uh, get rid of anything that's invading, and that includes cancer. So normally, T-cells should be part of a person's ability to fight off cancer. But for whatever reason, many cancers, including lymphomas, are able to hide from the T-cells and uh, survive, you know, unnoticed. So with CAR-T, we take the T-cells from the patient. They are engineered in a lab to now recognize proteins that are on the surface of the lymphoma, and as soon as they are given back to the patient and they find their target, they expand and then uh, mount a very uh, brisk and very vigorous immune response, which will hopefully eliminate uh, the lymphoma. On a practical level, what that means for a patient is that if uh, somebody is considered appropriate for a CAR-T therapy, They are evaluated at a center. Uh, Currently, I believe there's about 15 centers in the United States that do this routinely, and hopefully there will be more. Uh, They are evaluated to see if they are appropriate. Their T cells are collected through something called a phoresis procedure. The cells are sent off to be engineered. Uh, Once they arrive back, which can take anywhere from 7 to uh, 21 days, Patients receive a small amount of chemotherapy that is called bridging chemo, and then they get back their CAR T cells, and this immune response can occur. Now, one of the important things to know is that not everybody is going to be appropriate for a CAR T, and whether or not somebody is, I think, is really a very individual assessment. In general, these are very promising, but there are also some side effects to know about. One in particular is called cytokine release syndrome, or CRS, and this is essentially where the immune response is so vigorous that people can have very high fevers, uh, up to 103, 104. Some people can become very confused. Uh, The blood pressure can drop, and sometimes people do need to be monitored in an intensive care unit. So this is something that is very exciting and promising because it does work for a good portion of patients um, when a stem cell transplant has not worked or if they cannot uh, go to a stem cell transplant. But it's also important to know that there are some some side effects. Now, for people who uh, cannot get a stem cell transplant or have their disease come back after a transplant or cannot get a CAR-T, Um, I think this is really where the next part of the discussion comes in, which is what is the role of clinical trials in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. 
And I like to start this off just by reminding everybody that clinical trials are absolutely essential, not only to progress, but also to just uh, understanding more about the biology of the disease. And as Dr. Leonard was saying, there are drugs that are being tested in people where the diseases come back multiple times, and we use that information to move it up front, to cure more people in the frontline setting. And it's very important to understand that historically, clinical trials were somewhat random. And I think that led to this fear of, you know, am I a guinea pig? This is something that, you know, they're just randomly testing. And those days are over. Today, clinical trials and especially in a disease like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, are no longer random drugs or random concepts. They are biologically based. They are rational. So in other words, they make sense to the people who are designing the study to test in this specific disease. Um, and I think this not only is better for patients, but I also think that it gives a little bit more optimism that when you're on a clinical trial, you are truly getting something that's cutting edge and makes sense and not just a random uh, test subject. Now, when it comes to clinical trials, there are several different types, and you may have heard about phase one, phase two, or phase three trials, so I'll just say one sentence on each one of those types. Phase one trials are usually uh, to test what combinations of new drugs or even existing drugs are safe to deliver. Phase one studies are really looking at safety and tolerability of a drug or a combination of drugs. Some may be FDA approved, some may be investigational, um, but the goal of the, the trial is to look for safety. Now, of course, because these are rational drugs, we are also hoping to see some type of response. Um, but the primary goal of a phase one trial is to determine safety. A phase two trial is a larger study where people um, who are part of a phase two in general all receive the same treatment, or at least groups of patients will receive the same treatment, and the goal is to see how effective the treatment is in a particular group of patients. When we get to phase three trials, that's when we take the information from the phase one or the phase two trial and we do something called a randomization where half the patients will get one treatment and half the patients will get another treatment with the assumption that one of those treatments is as close to the standard of care as possible. Um, and these tend to be very large trials. Uh, it's very important uh, to know that, that most trials do not have a placebo uh, or a sugar pill. I think that's one of the more common com you know, concerns that I hear from my patients. And if there is a placebo, you would be notified that there is a chance of you receiving that. And it's almost always in the setting where uh, observation is the standard of care. So, for example, as Dr. Leonard was saying, when you're done with RCHOP, usually you're done. There's no more treatment other than just following the disease. And in that situation, it would be very reasonable to say, well, let's see if adding this new drug is better than not adding a drug, in which case a placebo might be considered. And I do think that, you know, with the way that clinical trials are moving, you know, where does it fit into how we, you know, look at management of, of a patient? And I think it's really important to know that clinical trials are no longer a last resort. I think they should be an option at all phases of the disease, frontline, the first time it comes back, maybe the second or third time it comes back. 
I, I think that clinical trials should always be an option. If they are earlier in the disease course, for example, with people who are newly diagnosed, it's almost always building on the standard of care. So you can think about it as receiving the standard of care plus something new that makes sense. And it's very important for you to ask your doctor and your treatment team about clinical trial options at really all stages of uh, the experience with lymphoma. Uh, if you want more concrete information, you can always go to the Lymphoma Research Foundation at lymphoma.org or to clinicaltrials.gov, and there are many other resources that are available. So just in the last few minutes, um, I'm going to switch uh, to a slightly different topic, which is uh, very, very important, um, but it is to talk about side effects of treatment and quality of life. This is really the central part of our care for our patients. Um, it's no good to have a treatment that works if nobody can tolerate it. And uh, certainly this is something that people who write clinical trials like Dr. Leonard and myself, you know, really keep in mind. Um, as has already been mentioned, communication is really key. You know, this is not the time to try to suffer through a side effect or to attribute, you know, a side effect, especially if it's serious, you know, to something else. Always raise whatever you're feeling to your treatment team. And this type of communication um, can be with your nurse, the nurse practitioner, with the physician, with anybody who is on your treatment team. You know, it's very important to speak up. Um, I think most practices have guidelines uh, that they give their patients um, for the more common side effects, such as nausea, constipation, peripheral neuropathy, which is numbness or tingling of your fingers or toes, low blood counts, the risk of infection. And certainly in our practice, we give teaching sheets um, you know, to everyone so they have an idea of what to expect and uh, when to call and how severe uh, the side effects might be. So, you know, some information really needs to come from your treating team, um, but again, the communication is really the, the, the important piece. Uh, what I've found for many of my patients is that keeping a diary or a journal is very helpful. And, uh, you know, don't worry about this being too detailed. I mean, I think you can write whatever you'd like and, you know, whatever is troubling you uh, to bring up you know, at your visits, but I think things like diarrhea and, uh, you know, other things that may not seem like a big deal if it's just once or twice a day, sometimes people don't realize that they're actually having it four or five times a day until they write it down, and then they go back and look, and it becomes much easier for the treating team to understand the severity if you can keep some type of diary. And there are certainly apps, um, including the Lymphoma Research Foundation app, uh, where you can monitor and keep tabs on your symptoms. And then just the last thing I'll mention about side effects, which kind of tips into quality of life, is that we are in a new era with lymphoma in general. And that is that we have a lot of treatments that are oral, not specifically for diffuse large B-cell, but certainly for, for many lymphomas. And these can have side effects that are what we consider low-grade. You know, they're kind of mild, they're a nuisance, but they persist. And sometimes just having, let's say somebody has low-grade nausea, but it's every day. Well, low-grade nausea every day for four months, six months, or a year is not quality of life. And so those are also things uh, to talk about um, 
you know, with your physician. And then the last piece about quality of life that I'll just mention is that, you know, we do hope to cure as many people as possible with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And I think that the field has done a really great job of moving forward. But sometimes even when somebody is cured, they're left with residual effects uh, from their initial treatment or from their lymphoma itself. And um, again, the communication piece is important. Uh, getting something called a survivorship plan from your treating team is very helpful, and that will give you uh, some information for the rest of your life where you know that if you have peripheral neuropathy or if you have uh, effects on the heart or the joints or uh, with your metabolism, you know, there are some late effects that can happen with um, some of the treatments that we use when we, when we do cure people. So again, um, having lifelong care is very important. So I realize that I think we've all covered quite a bit of information, but I am going to turn it back over to Dr. Messner and uh, thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Smith. That was really outstanding and very, very informative. And I know there are questions. There are questions coming in now, and we haven't even explained to you how to cure for questions. So there we have it. So thank you very much. And there'll be questions I know for you. Before we take questions, I just want to say a word about um, you being able to get um, help with some of your practical and emotional and uh, psychosocial concerns. So um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide um, practical financial assistance and copay assistance. Um, um, for people living with uh, cancer, with lymphoma. Um, we also um, have uh, a staff of uh, trained, master's level trained oncology social workers, and we're here to provide counseling services, which is a fancy word for really someone that you can talk to about your concerns about living with lymphoma, about your concerns about talking with your children, talking with your employer, um, even thinking about it for yourself. Um, we also offer telephone support groups as well as online support groups. We have over 120 online support groups on every topic you could imagine, and for caregivers as well as for people living with lymphoma. So that's an option for people both in the U.S. and internationally as well, because just because the time, of course, um, there is they, these are programs that people can post the online groups 24 hours a day. You do have to apply for these programs. They are free, and our staff will then um, discuss them with you and um, online, and then um, they're available to you. Um, so uh, those are just some uh, various services that you can access from Cancer Care. And we did mention the Lymphoma Research Foundation, which is a wonderful resource. And I do want to um, really call out to them again, just because they're someone that we work with a lot. And um, I just want to be sure, and you will get this in your materials as well, but they also have an 800 number and a wonderful website. And for those of you who want to get additional information, booklets, fact sheets about lymphoma, they're a wonderful resource as well. So now we can take questions. I'm going to ask um, Crystal to explain to everybody how to cure for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get your questions, then I will at the end of the program give you a resource to get your questions answered. But let's see how many we can take right now. And please bring our speakers on board so we can all address the questions. Okay. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Joan B. Your line is open. Uh, yes, I was wanting to know about um, transformed large diffuse uh, lymphoma. Uh, if you uh, do uh, have been treated for that and then it comes back, 
and you can't get a transplant, would CAR-T be appropriate for that, or what other treatments methods would be for transform, follicular transformed large diffuse? Well, thank you very much, Joan, for your question. Dr. Leonard, do you want to start with that question? Sure. So that's a, a great question, um, the issue in, in general around transform lymphomas, and that's one that I did not touch on and probably should have, so thank you for raising your question as well as the specific uh, details uh, that you mentioned as far as treatment. So what is transform lymphoma? Transform lymphoma is when someone has an indolent lymphoma and it turns into or transforms into an aggressive lymphoma, typically diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, but sometimes some of the others. That um, that is, and typically, again, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is the case. That can unfold in a number of different ways. Patients can not know they have any lymphoma, find out they have diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, but they already had, they have also at the same time some indolent lymphoma, and so it's kind of like having two lymphomas at once and get treated primarily for the more aggressive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma type. So essentially being diagnosed de novo with a transformed lymphoma or as a brand new diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and follicular lymphoma or indolent lymphoma at the same time. That's one scenario. A second scenario is where a patient has indolent lymphoma for years and years and years and gets treatments and, and then or not, and then it turns into having that indolent lymphoma turns into being an aggressive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And then finally, sometimes people are diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and relapse with an indolent lymphoma. And so the assumption is, is that they, in fact, have had a transformation or kind of two lymphomas in one over the course of that time period. And so as you can imagine, this is a a, a scenario that plays out in different ways for different people, and the appropriate treatments and the outlooks may be different depending on how all of that unfolds. A general rule of thumb is that is that when a transformed lymphoma, typically diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, emerges, we treat it like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So the treatments for transformed lymphoma, if it's behaving and if the biopsies are showing diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, then it's very similar to the treatments that we use for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, both at diagnosis and if it relapses. And so the nuances of that and the, the patterns of that typically are consistent with what Dr. Smith and I outlined for previously for upfront or initial treatment as well as relapse treatment. So that being said, transformation is a very complicated and individualized issue, but in general the treatments for relapsed large cell lymphoma that are that are occurring without transformation are also the appropriate treatments for patients with transformed lymphoma. And so, yes, CAR T cells would be a reasonable treatment to consider um, for a patient with a recurrent transformed lymphoma because that generally is treated like a recurrent diffuse large B cell lymphoma. But just keep in the back of your mind, though, that there are lots of details and nuances around this where things might not be the case, but in general, Diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and transformed lymphoma are managed in a similar fashion, including CAR T-cells when appropriate. Excellent. Wow, thank you. And um, did, did you want anything, Dr. Smith? Or? No, I, I think that was perfect. And, you know, really the issue is that once it's transformed, uh, we treat for the faster-growing component, the more aggressive one. So all the same things we talked about will apply. 
So we have another question, which is slow, but I believe it might be different. I'm going to give this to Dr. Smith, and if it turns out to be the same question, then please uh, correct me. But I have chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL. I'm currently on watch and wait and have not had treatment. My understanding is that CLL is incurable, but that it may transform into DLBCL, which is much more aggressive, but may be cured. My question, when CLL transforms, when or if CL transforms into DLBCL, does all of it transform? Put another way, if, D, if DLBCL is cured, does that mean that I no longer have to worry about CLL? And again, that's a complex question, an excellent question, but nevertheless, um, if you could address it in a general way, and hopefully then it will allow our, our online participant to take that back to the treating healthcare team. Yeah, absolutely, and it, and you're right. It is a little related to what we just talked about, which is that there are a number of what we call slow-growing or indolent lymphomas, and all of them have the potential to transform into a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, for uh, probably historical reasons, when CLL transforms to diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, we give it a different name. We give it a special name called Richter's transformation. And, um, you know, we can often, you know, treat the faster-growing part just as we do with a follicular lymphoma that is transformed. But with all of those lymphomas, the slow-growing part is always there. There are always, even if you get rid of the fast part, the CLL would still be there. Um, that being said, I think Richter's is a special subtype of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And, you know, sometimes because people have already had a lot of other treatments for their CLL, um, sometimes the treatment options may be a little bit different. Um, but that being said, if we treat the fast-growing part, the slow-growing part is still there. Excellent. Thank you. Um and there's another question, which is on the online, is not totally coming through. So I'll read part of it for Dr. Leonard. Um, unfortunately, the other part is not. Oh, here it is. Okay. All right. I've got the whole thing now. I completed our Regeron Phase One immunotherapy treatment over two years ago and continue to remain in remission. Subsequently, they have increased dosage fourfold. Why do you think my lower dosage was effective for me? It's completely unknown how long my immune system can be effective on its own. It's a complicated question. Or if it, a lot of pieces to it. So if you could address it, Dr. Leonard, in a general way, um, it might be helpful. Sure. Okay. So, so the question, as I understand it, is relates more to the dose that a patient mm -hmm. receives. This happens to be on a clinical trial, but honestly, the question could apply to people who are treated not on clinical trials, and that reflects the fact that in different scenarios, different doses might be given. And, you know, why would that be, why would a lower dose work uh, or a higher dose not work better potentially in some situation? And, you know, in a general sense, as Dr. Smith said, in the earlier days of chemotherapy, it was, well, more must be better and we'll give as much as we can that the person can reasonably tolerate. And to some extent, with some chemotherapy drugs, that is clear, meaning that if you uh, if you can give more, that has a benefit to the patient, assuming that the side effects of the treatment are are still manageable. On the other hand, there are scenarios where we lower doses of chemotherapy, and the treatment may be reasonably effective or even similarly effective. So, for instance, in older patients with diffuse large B cell lymphoma. 
say, patients in their 80s and 90s, often we use a regimen called mini-R-CHOP, which gives several of the drugs at a lower dose than the standard R-CHOP. And while we generally think that that doesn't quite work as well, it can still work for some people, perhaps not quite the same, but still reasonably well, and is easier to tolerate in that case for older patients. So that's a chemotherapy situation. When we talk about new drugs, including immunotherapies, which are, come in different, different types, but essentially are trying to activate the immune system, the dose that we give is not necessarily the only dose, meaning that it may be that it's tolerable to give twice as much, or it could be effective to give half as much. And just the way that the drugs are developed, all of those details are not uh, entirely clear. So various drugs have what we would call a dose response, and others across a wide variety of doses may may still have benefits. Similarly, if for some headaches you need to take uh, 1,000 milligrams of, of acetaminophen, some headaches, uh, 325 milligrams works just fine. Um, and so it just depends on, on the scenario uh, and the case that it's in. And, you know, many people on the call may have received rituximab or rituxan as part of their treatment, and we've talked about it. But the dose of rituxan or rituximab is not necessarily based on knowledge that that is the absolute best dose, but that dose for a variety of practical reasons is what was studied in clinical trials and what has been stuck with. And it's quite possible that by adjusting the dose, uh, things would be similar or things might be different, but that's the dose we use. So unfortunately, despite all of the clinical trials we do, we don't always have clear data to show that the exact dose that we've selected for practical reasons is necessarily the only dose or the best dose. And sometimes it can work just as well with fewer side effects if we give a lower dose. And so um, in some cases, we might make those modifications. Excellent. Thank you. And um, a question now for Dr. Smith. Um, so what if a patient um, progresses during treatment? What if a patient progress during treatment, is refractory treatment, or relapses at some time period after achieving a complete remission? Is there a specific question to that or just, it's just um, that the whole thing? Okay. Yeah, and, and so that is, you know, exactly what we were talking about, which is if the disease progresses through treatment or relapses after a treatment, we try to give different kinds of chemotherapy to get another remission, and if the chemotherapy works, we can think about a stem cell transplant. If the second-line chemotherapy doesn't work, um, then currently in the United States at least, CAR-T is an option. And if CAR-T is not an option and the disease continues to grow, I think this is where a clinical trial makes a lot of sense, um, you know, especially with some of the new targeted drugs being tested. Now, if a clinical trial is not available, um, there are times when um, we will use drugs that are not approved for, for this particular setting, but there are drugs such as lenalidomide or abrutinib, um, or different kinds of chemotherapy uh, that, that can be tried. But I would say that if, you know, anybody does have progressive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, um, this is really a great time to get a second opinion um, and to see if there's a clinical trial. 
And could you comment a little more about the second opinion in terms of going to a center of, or going to people who actually have expertise in this area? I know that um, it's large areas of the country and world, I suppose, that we're talking, addressing, but still just the concept of that. You and, both you and Dr. Lennon have tremendous expertise in this area, and uh, sometimes people may not recognize how important that is in terms of that second opinion. Yeah, no, I think having a second opinion is absolutely essential in almost every type of lymphoma, to be honest. It's a very complicated area with so many different subtypes, and, you know, hopefully your oncologist is supportive of a second opinion. Um, you know, and if they're not, I, I do think reaching out to Lymphoma Research Foundation or Cancer Care for other resources, you know, would make a lot of sense. But, you know, most people, they, they worry, am I going to offend my doctor if I ask for a second opinion? And, you know, I think about somebody in private practice who has to know everything about breast cancer, lung cancer, lymphoma, leukemia. And then there are people like Dr. Leonard and myself where we really get to focus on just one area, and that's what this is. And I think most people in practice respect that and value that. Um, and so I would really, you know, not be embarrassed to ask for that. And most, you know, oncologists who are good communicators uh, will agree to that. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Amana, do you want to add to that? Or? No, I I would agree 100% with that. I think that, um, you know, we we as lymphoma experts, and there are times I reach out to Dr. Dr. Smith about challenging cases that I see and vice versa, um, and, you know, within our centers, those centers that have multiple lymphoma experts, we often talk about cases ourselves, and maybe somebody has an idea uh, or an opinion or looks at it a little bit differently. So overall, I think, uh, you know, having another set of eyes take a look at one situation, particularly if the treatment is not working as well or the disease is not behaving as well as one expects, uh, I think that uh, that's always a good time and there's there's very little downside uh, and lots of potential upside of either getting another idea or another thought or just reassurance that all the proper things have been done and are, are planned uh, to do going forward. Excellent. And um, another question from our online participants um, uh, for Dr. Um, Smith. Um, is diffuse large B-cell lymphoma an inherited disease? Will siblings and children of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma have an increased risk of developing um, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? Yeah, what a great question. So, you know, I, I think the biggest challenge with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is that we don't really know what causes it in the vast majority of people. There are studies out there that tell us that there might be something in the environment. For example, we know that some types of lymphomas are increased in the farm belt where there may be more chemicals. Other types of lymphoma are related to different viruses like hepatitis C. Um, and we know that if somebody has an abnormal immune system, either through HIV or an organ transplant, they have a higher risk of lymphoma. But most of my patients don't have any of those. And so we are left with we don't know why it happened. Uh, in terms of uh, the hereditary part of it, or can you, you know, if you have a parent or a sibling, do you have a higher chance? I think the, the simple answer is that we don't know. Um, I do think that blood cancers can run in families, and, you know, if possible, there are cancer risk clinics uh, around the country that are trying to understand the genes that are involved. But as of today, we have no clear 
information on the risk of lymphoma, let's say, of a child, you know, after a parent has had lymphoma. Uh, we just don't have that information. Thank you. Excellent. So, so that's really helpful. Thank you. And um, another question for Dr. Leonard. As someone who has an autoimmune disorder, how often should I get checked for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or which symptoms should I pay close attention to? So one of the risk factors for various lymphomas, not just diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, is having an autoimmune disease. Um, so patients with autoimmune disease have a slightly increased risk of developing a lymphoma of many different types. That being said, there are many people, most people who have autoimmune diseases don't get lymphoma, but the fact that people in, with autoimmune disease, and autoimmune disease means the immune system is having effects against the person's normal tissues, so these are diseases such as lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or even psoriasis or even some sorts of autoimmune thyroid disorders are markers of an immune system that may be more prone to make mistakes in regulating itself, and occasionally those mistakes can, can lead to lymphoma. So there are people, and probably some of the people on the, on the call who have lymphoma also have a history of autoimmune disease. That's not a rare thing. But again, most people with autoimmune disease don't develop lymphoma. It's just a slightly increased risk of what is a low risk overall in the population. So for someone with autoimmune disease and, and without uh, lymphoma, a known lymphoma or without any evidence of lymphoma, I would say that the usual monitoring is the same as anybody else with respect to lymphoma, meaning you see your doctor for general medical care, and if you develop a symptom or if your doctor notes anything abnormal on your exam uh, or blood work or routine testing, then uh, one would chase after it. But there's no special screening like the equivalent of a mammogram or a colonoscopy that people should have as far as lymphoma. And in general, diagnosing lymphoma early is not something that is of tremendous value. So it's really not something that we have screening tests for or where there's value in the big picture of finding it earlier and treating it earlier. And that's unlike many other cancers in lymphoma. It really, you know, your care and your screening is just whatever you would normally do with your doctor as part of your general medical care. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, um, and Dr. Smith, did you want to add anything? Or? No, I, I think that that's absolutely true. People with autoimmune uh, disorders have inherently an increased risk of lymphoma, and uh, unfortunately we don't have any good uh, or standard screening tools. So I think just regular health care and making sure there's a physician who knows what you normally look like and what your exam is and what your blood work is is very, very important. And we have one, I think this will be our last question. We have other questions, although this will be the last question. Dr. Smith, if you could address this one. Which areas of the body can diffuse large B-cell lymphoma be found? Yeah, so uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma actually can go almost anywhere in the body. These cells, remember that the, the cell gone bad here is something called a B-cell, which is part of the immune system, and they have access to essentially all parts of the body. I mean, uh, I, I really do think you name a body part, and, and between Dr. Leonard and I, we've seen it. The most common places are in lymph nodes, which is the, where the word lymphoma comes from, but it can also go to parts of the GI tract or the gastrointestinal system. It can go to um, different organs like the lung. It can go to the skin, the bone marrow, 
Um, there are some special types of lymphoma that are primarily in the brain, um, others that are in the testes in, in older men or in the middle of the chest, uh, this mediastinal lymphoma. So the diffuse large B-cell lymphoma can go to any part of the body, most commonly lymph nodes and GI tract, but otherwise really anywhere is fair game. Excellent. And Dr. Lana, do you want to add to that? Or? No, I think, um, you know, just to highlight that the there are some special places where lymphomas turn up where we have to approach them a little bit differently. And uh, But for the most part, and the most important take-home message is that the number of places where large cell lymphoma and most lymphomas are found uh, is not the crucial thing. So whether you have it in six places or ten places, for the most part, generally does not make a big difference in the prognosis or treatment, and that's uh, obviously unlike many other cancers. Excellent. Well, I have to say I want to thank our speakers. You've been absolutely wonderful, Dr. Leonard, Dr. Smith, just incredible. And you can't hear us applauding, but we are applauding you. And also all of you who have asked such great questions, both on the telephone and online, uh, really excellent questions, um, uh, outstanding questions, which really helps to, of course, enhance the call. And I want to, um, so I want to thank all of our participants. Now, I did say that if we didn't get your question, I would give you some resources to get your questions answered. So I do want to kind of call out to, um, I usually give a, certainly the National Cancer Institute as a resource, which is a 1-800-422-6237 number, and they have a website, www.cancer.gov, and that will be listed in, you'll be getting an evaluation about the program today, and you'll be given a whole bunch of resources in that evaluation. So it's not just an evaluation, you'll be getting lots of resources that you can access as well. They also have a live chat feature, so you can post your question on their website, um, and on their website, actually, um, www.cancer.gov, and their information specialist will then be able to go into the databases and get all the things I really want to highlight um, is the Lymphoma Research Foundation, um, and they have an 800 number, 1-800-500-9976, and also their um, website, www.lymphoma.org, really just chock full of information and just wonderful information specialists there that can answer your questions, and so that can be very helpful as well. And of course, I don't want to um, sidestep at all your healthcare team. So I know that many of you, the information you've gotten on today's program, we invite you to take it back to your healthcare team, discuss with them. Perhaps it gives you greater confidence to ask your question or to feel more informed in asking your questions. But you know, basically, your healthcare team has all of your records and knows you well. And we also have talked about the concept of a second opinion sometimes when you feel that's necessary, um, and, and to not be. Um, uh, shy about doing that and indeed to use these advocacy groups um, that I've mentioned and all this information we'll be getting to talk to people about being confident about doing that when you really feel that that's important um, for your own health and well-being. Um, and, um, and most importantly, as we're about to conclude the call, I don't want to, anyone to feel you're alone in coping with um, uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or lymphoma or cancer in general. I want you to know that you're now part of a lot of resources to help you and I know in the middle of the night or at different moments during the day, you may feel terribly alone, but actually all these resources are there for you. And um, some people do find it helpful to be in a support group, to be in a program like this. Anything that helps you is really important, of course, your healthcare team. Um, so I want to thank you all for your participation. And I also want to mention to you that we have a program called Current Perspectives on Cancer Survivorship on June 19th, which might be of interest to all of you. And we are doing a program on CAR T-cells. 
um, actually, which Dr. Leonard will be speaking on, and that program is on um, June 25th. The brochure is being printed out, so you'll be hearing about that program, and it will be in your, when you get your evaluation, all the upcoming programs will be listed there as well. So again, thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.